This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life and to another installment in our series in the Gospel of John. We're continuing our discussion about the theme of the Gospel of John, about it being centered around eternal life. Uh, it has been our constant uh, reference point throughout this series. As I've pointed out over and over again the, throughout the book, this phrase, eternal life or abundant life, appears over and over again. But even still, even in the places where it just refers to life, that most often it is using the words zoe and sozo, rather than bios, rather than biological life, to refer to the kind of quality of life, not referring to physical life, but the expectation of a, a, a sense of connection with the eternal, a sense that, that life, the eternal life has invaded our present space, and that through His power, through His presence in our life, that you and I have a different kind of life because of it. So the emphasis here being not so much getting you into heaven, but getting heaven into you. What a novel idea. Well, today we're looking at a very short text. It is oftentimes treated like a segue text. It's when Jesus is returning to Cana in Galilee. This is his first return after having turned the water into wine at the wedding. And this is another encounter of Jesus in a private conversation not contained in the other biographies of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Once again, Jesus not speaking to someone, uh, you know, Jesus simply speaking to someone of questionable background and faith, character, things like this. In this case, a social elite, but not spiritual elite, and so that presents a number of uh, questions in this whole scenario. Uh, but of course, what we find is that this man, like everyone else, is no less important to Jesus uh, and of course, what happens in this man's life is no less important to him or his family than it is to anyone else. And so simply, we take a look at the heart of God for everyone who receives the Son. With that said, let's take a look. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. For using a phone or tablet, would you set that to silent for the sake of those around you? I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have, the one in your lap my favorite. Let's take a look. And after two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had been to the feast. So when he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, for your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So they asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So fairly, like I said, small text uh, and usually treated with a deal of a great deal of insignificance, um, you know, as little more than a, a segue to the important stuff, you know, I mean, because it's sandwiched between the Samaritan woman and then the healing that we'll talk about next week at the pool of uh, Bethesda. But, you know, uh, what's happens here is just often viewed as little other than transitional material telling you, well, he went from here to there and, and things like that. But funny thing, in the Bible, uh, you know, uh, and for that matter, uh, if you're not much of a reader, funny thing about reading, segues matter. Segways matter because they are leading you into a greater understanding. Segways matter because they are filling in the background uh, of things. They're giving you the details. And so the whole idea of just kind of treating a segue as unimportant is, I think, one of the reasons why people, when they're reading, they feel like they don't understand what they're reading or how did this happen, why did they get there. And usually the clues are in the segues. Segways are important. So I, I want to encourage you just in that and maybe even just simply by speaking on this segue all by itself, uh, that it really does matter because it gives us a clue as to what's happening in the background. And, and so these minor events uh, really get a, give us the bigger picture and are often much more significant than we treat them. So in this case, uh, Jesus is, you might remember from last week if you were with us, He'd been in Samaria, so he'd been down in Judea. Uh, maybe let's go ahead and pull the map up, because it just helps. So he was down you know, near Jerusalem, and uh, he headed north to uh, Jacob's well there, Sakar, the south side of Samaria, uh, continues north from there on up to Cana of Galilee. And uh, you know, in this whole process, at first he was talking like, the major, most important thing he was doing was headed to Cana. Of course, he stopped and stayed in Samaria for days, and there is the heavy focus on the woman at the well. And uh, after this, uh, you know, he's going to be there, and in and, and this very short text, he will turn around and head uh, back out of Cana of Galilee again. Um, and uh, you know, kind of like seems to be pretty insignificant from the standpoint of uh, how he couldn't wait to get there. So there, are, there is a seeming contradiction right off the bat um, in terms of what happens there. Uh, verse 44, we read those words that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Now, literally in Greek there, it doesn't say hometown. Uh, it literally says in his fatherland. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, and we can, you know, make, uh, extrapolate from that. I mean, just throughout the letter there, um, throughout the letter of John, there's a heavy focus on Cana of Galilee being Jesus' 
you know, main uh, place of growing up. There, there's some debate about that because he was born in Bethlehem, right? And he's of the lineage of David. And, and so, uh, in fact, some of the early church fathers, um, you know, uh, w- would emphasize that whole idea of him being from Bethlehem and saying that he's not Galilean. The interesting thing is, though, when you come to this passage, you know, when you're looking at it in this context, that throughout the Gospel of John, the focus is on Jesus being Jesus of Nazareth, being a you know being from the land uh, of from Galilee, and so uh, you know we have this here, and it says he's not welcome in his fatherland, and then verse forty-five it says he's warmly embraced in Galilee uh, because of what he had done in Jerusalem. And so there's this little bit of a confusion there, you know, and believe it or not, this is like, this was like being debated going all the way back to the early church fathers. Uh, one that's fairly famous, a guy by the name of Origen, wrote quite a bit. Uh, it, it was a, a leader even in his early 20s and wrote extensively, and we have a lot of his writings available today. And so he was like, well, see, the thing is, is what he's really saying is that you know, uh, he's not welcome in Jerusalem, you know, he's actually welcome in Galilee. That, you know, was how they were trying to reconcile it. Um, but, uh, you know, because of the context of it being in John, that doesn't make really sense. And so we, we have to, like, ask the question, uh, how, why does there seem to be this contradiction? Was this, like, you know, inserted at a later point or something like that? And... Uh, but uh, keep in mind that, um, uh, you know, uh, when the people from Galilee would go down to Jerusalem, uh, it was in simply in part, uh, you know, the, the festivals and all of that had to do with the temple and the expectation that people would make um, their journey there and worship at certain times of the year. And there was a, a great sense of expectation about that. But you might also remember that a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking about the baptisms all along the Transjordan, uh, that up and down the, the Jordan River, there were also a lot of sects within, uh, within Judaism that had a deep, a uh, sense of uh, distrust with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital, uh, and so uh, what's in the capital? Well, politicians, lots of politicians. Even the religious elite tend to be looked at as politicians. Uh, we talked a little bit about how the different sects along the Transjordan uh, practiced ablutions, baptisms, if you will, the baptism of John, etc., uh, was a common trait. Some people would even wash daily in a sense of, uh, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, uh, in connection with this idea of rejecting the temple, that they believe that uh, because the Spirit of God left in Ezekiel so that the temple could be run over by the pagans uh, and in an act of judgment, that the kingdom, that the, the, the um, temple had never been filled with the Spirit of God again. And so it was just an empty edifice and was a symbol of the consolidation of Jerusalem's power. Uh, the religious leaders were viewed with great suspect by these groups. Uh, and so, uh, you know, here you are in Galilee. I want you to think probably, uh, when you think about Galilee, think a little bit more like, you know, 
you're in Brooksville. And, you know, and you've traveled from the big city to Brooksville, and the people in Brooksville might be just a little bit suspicious of the people from Washington, D.C. Maybe? Anyone? Oh, come on now, I've seen your Facebook, okay? Anybody in Brooksville just a little suspicious of Washington, D.C.? Okay, all right, Let, you know, just, let's just be real for a moment. I know you're in church, but you can be honest. Ow. So there is a, an attitude within Galilee that everybody from Jerusalem is suspicious. It's not just a political thing, although the Herodians, uh, I want you to think in terms of the ruling family of Israel at this time, the Herodian family, uh, that there's a, a long history of, how, of political intrigue. Uh, King Herod the Great was one of the dearest friends of uh, you know, uh, Caesar, and, uh, and he like had a lot to do with uh, even uh, one of the Caesars getting into power over his brother. I mean, lots and lots of political intrigue. The guy was a master manipulator and politician. And he got to be king by actually just kind of sucking up to Caesar and getting Caesar then to appoint him as the king over Israel. Uh, so he had some lineage and ties but he was not the favored son to become the ruler of Jerusalem. And uh, so he gets that way through his political intrigue. Everybody then in his family is, you know, just riddled with that kind of political intrigue and flavor. Uh, Herod the Great had two sons, uh, or three sons, but uh, in particular at this time we've got Antipas and Philip and the way you re remember them is Antipas uh, had an affair with Philip's wife, with his brother's wife. Her name's Herodias. And John the Baptist was calling it filth and calling him out, saying that you do not have a right to your brother's wife. John's family is from Galilee. John is popular with the people. Why? Because he's calling out the Herodians and their filth. So he's not only suspicious of Jerusalem, uh, but he's suspicious particularly of the Herodian families and all this kind of stuff. And so if you'll remember when we were talking over the last few weeks, uh, there's this whole thing of them doing the baptisms. It's put them uh, out of step with the religious elite. We've got the whole thing where uh, the uh, religious elite even tried to sow discord between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, saying things like, well, they're baptizing more people than you are now. They're getting more popular than you are now. John steps in, explains to his disciples, I am like the best man, and I am rejoicing at the coming of the Messiah. I am rejoicing, and I don't lay claim to anyone. They belong to him. They do not belong to me. And just like any good bridegroom, like I step back from this moment and recognize what's happening. I'm celebrating uh, what's happening, and uh, you have nothing to worry about. There is no competition. 
the following you know, week, we looked at the text, and uh, what happens? Jesus decides to head north and go back up towards the Samaritan territory, uh, headed to Cana of Galilee, but goes through the Samaritan territory. John's disciples come south, they head down to Jerusalem, and now that this moment has come, uh, Jesus comes home to the, the kind of the hometown area, if you will, and uh, the people, it says that they welcome him. Right after it said, that a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. What's the contradiction? It really comes down to this. Jesus is welcome because he's, in their eyes, anti-establishment. He's done right. He's done proud by the boys of Galilee. What has he done? He's confronted the religious leaders. He's had battles with them. Now he's done signs and wonders, and we're all impressed. The hometown boy seems to have done good. But that doesn't mean they like you. Hello? Anybody here in Brooksville lived here long enough to realize that sometimes you can be claimed because you're one of us, and the next week, you know, you're the foreigner who's only lived here for like 30 years. Hello? And the reality is, for Jesus, is that uh, you know, he's not received as a prophet. There's a huge difference be, between being received as a good guy, uh, being thought of politically, socially well, maybe in some terms, but we all still remember, they know about that whole virgin birth thing, question mark, that's in their minds. Uh, uh, you know, there's all kinds of questions about his background. He's not a, a person that uh, they would view uh, very highly. He's, you know, was probably a pain in the neck to the rabbi, things like that. And so, uh, in all of those things, Jesus is welcome home. But if you'll remember, just last week, The Samaritans called him the Savior of the world, but not the Galileans. Lots of amazing miracles being done. We're impressed, but no one called him the Savior of the world. You, you might say to yourself, well, you know, I mean, he hadn't been there a long time. He just arrived. But I want to remind you that uh, when he arrived in Samaria, uh, in Samaria, that he was an outsider to that group of people, uh, that Samaritans didn't like Jews any more than Jews like Samaritans. And so there's all kinds of reasons for them not to receive Jesus. And, and that, interesting enough, there in the text in Samaria, there's not a single miracle done. Okay, maybe you could kind of point to the fact that he gives her like a, a, a prophetic word and speaks to things that has happened in her life. That's the closest we get to any kind of miraculous thing happening. It's just that he has this knowledge, a word of knowledge or something like that that he gives and shares with her, and she realizes that nobody could do that unless God was with them. But then in terms of when the town comes out, there's no recorded miracles or anything like that. It just simply says that they believed in him, 
because of what he said. He literally, they literally say that to her. They said, well, before we came out and we were interested because of what you said about what he said, but now we've heard for ourselves. We've seen these things. We've seen who he is. We've heard of who he is uh, from his, right from his own mouth. And now we believe that he is the Savior of the world. No such statement in Galilee. Big difference. I don't know about you, but I, I would just simply think it's a bigger difference to say someone is the savior of the world rather than to say he's a good old boy. Anybody here see a little difference in that? I mean, just maybe, like, you know, minutely a little difference between those two things. Huge difference, right? And so the difference between the Samaritans' belief in and the Galileans' welcome is really distinct. So then we get to verse 48, and we meet the official. Now, I don't know how your translation in your lap uh, works it out, but here in the English Standard Version, uh, it just simply says an official, and the, the, you know, the indication is in the text we're talking about a royal official, not just any official. When we're talking about government, we're not talking about him being a Roman official. We're not just talking about him being a bureaucrat or something like that. It, it indicates very clearly that he's a royal official, meaning that he is, uh, works for one of the Herods. And in this case, we're probably talking, uh, due to the area and everything else, we're probably talking that he was a servant of Antipas, the guy who has Herodias as his new bride, having taken her from his brother. Which is kind of nasty when you think about it. It's your brother's wife, you know, but okay, nonetheless. All right, so, uh, and, but here's the deal is even if that hadn't happened, like there's this deep disdain by Galileans for Herodians. This disdain for the temple elite, this disdain for politicians uh, is especially deep when it comes to Herodians because they are politicians. And they're supposed to be God-fearing Jews, but what we know about the Herodians was that they were very syncretistic, uh, much like the Samaritans. They would practice whatever was like, so if they were in Rome, they would do like the Romans, right? And they would worship at the Roman temples and things like that. Uh, one of the things that Antipas in particular did was that uh, he had special days of celebration uh, on the temple grounds where he would invite pagans in and perform pagan rituals on the grounds of the temple. So, like, these people hate this guy with a royal passion. So now, you know, that I see this little... The royal passion, you're supposed to chuckle, okay? But anyhow, um, so uh, all those things, you know, are playing into this, and uh, this disdain is there in the middle of it. And, and remember what I said, you know, uh, last week about Jesus and the elite, that, like with Nicodemus. They're welcome, but Jesus doesn't, like, go out and pursue them, right? He goes to the Samaritans, he goes to these nobodies from nowhere and things like that. Now, this, here's this royal official. We're not given his name. There could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, we're not giving his name. They come to, he comes to him, and, the, and he asks Jesus if he will heal his son. 
And Jesus responds with kind of a challenge that if you and I don't know the entire background, could sound a little on the harsh side, right? You know, just like, man, you know, you guys are always, everybody's just interested in signs and wonders around here. But if you and I kind of just even keep the text in mind where he said that he had done these signs and wonders there, uh, and, and we look at the whole thing, we just like, we hardly flipped a page, right, from Nicodemus, all the way here to this moment. Uh, the, the context of everything that we understand about the Samaritans and that they believe, and yet they haven't had water turned to wine. I don't know if you remember this, but when I, we're talking about water turning to wine, like I was talking about that's like a big sea kind of change, right? That's not just like he made it warm or he made it cold. It didn't, you know, it didn't like it just didn't become ice cubes or go into a gas. We're talking about water into wine. You tried that recently? You know, maybe over six months, right, with a lot of fruit. Uh, you don't just turn water into wine. It's a huge kind of change, molecular kind of change. We're, we're talking about something more than chemistry here. In that moment when that happens, they've had amazing miracles there. And yet, in the midst of all these amazing miracles, they go, yeah, well, you know, Jesus, we, we, we kind of like him, but, you know, I mean, this whole Son of God thing seems like a little bit much, you know. I mean, you know, I remember him in Bible class. Jesus has done signs and wonders, and so he says to this official, but presumably not just for the sake of the official, he says it in a way that indicates that he's, he's talking to all of those gathered. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's, it's a commentary on what's going on, presumably not just a correction to the Father, but a rebuke to everyone listening. And then the man responds with this heartfelt plea. Come, so that my son will live. Indicating that his faith has moved from a belief in signs and wonders to belief in Jesus. He's not asking for signs and wonders. He's saying, come, come so that my son doesn't die. I need you. I think it's something sometimes we even forget in the terms of like sometimes when we're praying and we're asking for God to intervene in our world and, uh, and when we're, uh, or if we're praying over somebody for healing or whatever else and we act like healing is a thing when healing is about a person. It's about what God does. We're asking God to be God because nothing else will do. And so in that moment, he says, come, I need you so that my son will live. And Jesus responds, go home, your son will zoe. He doesn't say your son will have biological life. He says in a very specific and unique way, 
something that would make no sense otherwise in the context, except that you and I know that the theme of the book is eternal life, and that the hope here is not just for him biologically to recover. The desire of God, the heart of God, is that you and I would know him and that we would live, that we would have life eternal, that we would have the abundant life, that there's so much more that you and I need than just simply a physical healing, that what we need is the real eternal healing. We need the real life. And so in the midst of this, Jesus responds to him, in this very unique way, and he says, go home, your son will Zoe, he will live. And three things happen. First, the text tells us that the man believed. And the belief spoken of means he put his faith in Jesus just like the Samaritans. This man believes not just in signs and wonders, but he believes in Jesus. Now keep in mind, he's of the political elite, he's disdained by the Jews as being a sellout. He had all the credibility in their minds of a Samaritan. But take note that Jesus promises him. I will give him life. And when he believes in that moment, it changes their life forever. John is telling us that here's this person in the midst of unorthodox practice, of questionable religious background, uh, that he has come into the kingdom ahead of those who were first. Remember what I said earlier, we just turned a page, basically, in terms of reading, and we've gone all the way from Nicodemus through the Samaritan land, all the way here to this instance right here. And we're reminded, because if we were reading it, just if you're sitting at home reading it right now, Nicodemus just happened in your mind, even though it was a while ago. But in your mind, as you're turning those pages, like Nicodemus just happened. And what was Nicodemus told? Your problem is you put your trust in your birthright. Your problem is that you've put your trust in your doctrine and you haven't put your trust in me. And then we see people entering in the kingdom of God. We have those six of those seven conversations that happen only in the Gospel of John, all centered around this theme of eternal life. And what are they doing? He who was born and who thought that he had everything because of that he was a Jew and a pure Jew and a good teacher and a good understanding of the law is told, you do not understand because you put your trust in that and what you need is to be born again and so the Samaritan woman and all the Samaritan people the people who are considered far off not worth saving not important ugly sinful horrible people she and all of her neighbors come into the kingdom and now here's the royal official and he's what he's the same kind of disgusting to the people of the town he's the same kind of disgusting he's the same kind of person you don't want to trust we received Jesus when he came back home because he was down there in Jerusalem and put those boys in their place but now Now he's spoken Zoe over the official. I can imagine at this point just skin's crawling. 
but he put his trust in, he believed in Jesus. And so his child gets healed. He gets saved. And then, here's the next part. And his, how, his whole household believed in Jesus. You think? The boy was as good as dead. In the hour he believed, his son was healed. The ruling elite, the pure blood, the orthodox, couldn't seem to turn loose. The funny thing is, if anybody had something to lose this time, wasn't it the royal official? Loses position, loses credibility. Put his trust in the very people who are preaching a kingdom that is contrary to his own kingdom, right? I mean, you do remember, or if you don't, let me, let me fill you in. When Jesus was born and the Magi came from the east and they were looking for Jesus, they wanted the Magi to come back and tell them where Jesus was so that they could kill him because he wouldn't have anyone else be a pretender to his throne. And when the Magi didn't come back that way, they did what? They wiped out every child two years old and under. They murdered all the children in a city because there was going to be no one who was a pretender to his throne. I just want you to think for just a moment. Do you think this might have cost this man something? Maybe that's why his name isn't recorded for us. Because to do so might have been life or death. Remember, Antipas, even though he liked John, still took his head because the pretty girl danced around nearly naked for him. And you don't think a guy that will take somebody's life to satisfy the pretty girl wouldn't kill one of his own officials? for declaring that Jesus is the Messiah? What we have here is, in this biography is we have the, the unorthodox mutts, two in a row, disdained by the religious elite, and they're believing in Jesus, and they're finding eternal life, and not just them, but their communities, their friends, their family. Like right, This whole thing is growing already out of control. That's why there's this constant sense of, of, wait, wait, don't tell them yet, don't tell them yet. I mean, it's all Jesus can do. Jesus, Son of God, it's all he can do to hold back the tide for three years so that he can train and equip and prepare the disciples so that they would be able to leave through, lead throughout the ages, that, that the church would continue. But right now, there's this moment in which, like, look, everything is shifting right under their feet. There is tremendous change happening. 
because the unorthodox mutts are welcomed into the kingdom of God. They have the opportunity to embrace eternal life, not because they're so orthodox, not because they've got it all together, not because they're of the right bloodlines, not because they're from the right families, not because they belong in the right neighborhoods or anything else like that, but they have brought towns and households into the kingdom with them. And so then you and I just kind of remember, we scroll back just four chapters. Chapter 1, verse 11, in the epilogue we're told, And Jesus came to his own, but they did not receive him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, to all who believed in him, he gave to them the right to become children of God. And then note this point, not born of the flesh. Nicodemus, your blood, your birthright doesn't matter here. Not born of the will of man. It wasn't your idea, it wasn't your conception, it wasn't anything that you could do in and of yourself, but, but born of God. And that growing message was that those who trusted in Jesus could find Zoe. They could find the eternal life, that they would put their trust not in their own abilities, not in their bloodlines, not in their knowledge or anything else, but they would find eternal life. They would enter in simply because they put their trust in Jesus. So those whom it would seem were impossibly far away found the way. And his name is Jesus. Please note that though this man came looking for signs and wonders, though he came looking for miracles, It was when he put his faith in Jesus that he found his miracle. But he did not reward the people of Galilee with a show or a spectacle. And then Jesus challenged the man and asked him, what you need to do is to believe, not in the miracles, but in me. Listen, can I just tell you, I believe in miracle signs and wonders. I have seen some amazing healings and, and miracles of biblical proportion over the years, but I would say to you and to anyone else, listen, you and I have not been called to believe in those things, but to believe in Jesus. You, you believe in miracles, you might see some or you might not. But if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, and I promise you, you will see the works of God. Please note, that's what Jesus did for him and his family because he wanted them to believe. Let's stand together. You know, as I said before, I, I believe in miracles, signs, and wonders. And, and in believing in them, I, I, you know, it, it is centered in the fact that I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he did. And that he is the unchanging God. And I believe he can 
and will do those things again. And so I, I would tell you it's not wrong to want miracle signs and wonders uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe you're here today and you, that's what you actually need. You, you need a miracle in your life. You need God to intervene in your situation, your setting, your life. Maybe you need healing. Uh, maybe you need deliverance. Uh, whatever it might be, uh, I would say to you, listen, that the, the point is that you and I would put our faith not in the things, but in Jesus himself. We, we put our trust in him, we put our hope in him, um, and then we call out to him is the one in whom we have believed and the one in whom we have put our faith, uh, and that he meets us in that. Uh, regardless of how he chooses to answer, he, he meets us in the midst of that. He will answer you. He does hear your cry. And so I would say to you this morning, if you have any of those needs, that uh, in a moment we're going to have the prayer team come on up, and let me encourage you to come and get some prayer for those things today. Uh, secondly, I would say to you, you know, if uh, you're like me, you find, you know, that you just came as kind of a mutt. You didn't have uh, all the background. You didn't have the heritage, the learning, the understanding, or whatever else. Like, listen, the heart of God is for you. He's for me. And that it's, we don't come because we've got our act together. We don't come because we have all the understanding in the world or whatever else. That we surrender to Jesus because he's the best deal going. He is the hope. He is life. Uh, and so uh, we come to him and then he begins to work in our lives to change us, to bring us into a place of where we're walking with him in a way that uh, gives us life, abundant life, even here now in the present, even here in the midst of difficult circumstances, settings, and situations. And then finally, I would say to you this morning, you know, that um, uh, whatever your need is, like whether it is a relational need or it's a supernatural need, or if it's simply just uh, uh, emotional or uh, you know, some kind of social need or whatever this morning, like, you know, we're talking about the God of the universe. And yet we're also talking about the Jesus who cared for people as individuals. Like he had these conversations with them and no matter what their station in life was, no matter how religious or unreligious, no matter how capable or even lacking they were, regardless of whether they were of the elite station of life or they were literally at the bottom rung, like that the heart of Jesus over and over and over again is for all those who would come to him. And so I would say to you, whatever your need is this morning, big or small, supernatural or natural, physical, relational, financial, I would just simply say to you this morning um, to come and get some prayer and ask God to intervene into your situation, to intervene in your life, and that you do so just with a sense of trust in him to meet you where you're at. So I'm going to ask the prayer team members, go ahead and come on up. As they're coming, let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for this morning and for our time together. We thank you for your word and for the hope of eternal life. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to work in us and through us, through eternal life, through the power and the presence of your spirit, and that we would find in you not only the hope of eternal life, but the healing that we need, the, the, the miracles that we need for life, uh, the, the, the things, that are life situations, hope, direction, understanding, that we would find you in it all. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Hope to see you next week. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.